Welcome to Terra.do's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation, and many more. Today's guest is Gokul Hallen. Gokul, a hydrogeologist by training, is part of the team of four handling the Water Resources Program of Keystone Foundation. He manages water-related projects in the Nilgiris. With a keen interest in community development, Gokul, who belongs to the Badaga community, is always looking for an opportunity to apply traditional wisdom to develop solutions to modern-day issues of water management. I'm Keithi Manyan, and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Gokul. Welcome to our show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how your career reached this part? And what is your current role at the Keystone Foundation? Hi, Kriti. First of all, thanks for giving us this opportunity to talk with you about our work in the Nilgiri Biosphere Reserve. Uh, I have a background in Master's in Social Work from PhD College of Art and Science in Coimbatore. And how did I choose this career? It's really difficult to answer because I was always thinking about doing community development work. But after doing MSW, I was like other youth in a dilemma about choosing what to do with the community. So when I came to know about Keystone Foundation and their work here with the indigenous communities, I was really inspired. There was an opening to work on one of the small projects. I joined in as an intern and a volunteer initially. And in six months period, I was really interested in working with them in a long run. So I started as a research assistant and today I am an additional program coordinator of water and sanitation. So it's been seven plus years with Keystone Foundation as of now. Wow. It sounds very fulfilling. (laughs) (laughs) Take us to the role of GIS, please. Recently, I've started to work on this project uh, along with a consortium of nine organizations. So I'm a sub-grantee and I'm also a research assistant under this program. It's called Landslip. We are actually looking at areas prone to landslides. So the GSI has already done a study and they've kind of developed these maps and they've already notified 283 locations as vulnerable or prone to landslides in the Nilgiris. And it looks at climatic models. So there is Italy, there is CNR, there is an organization called CNR in Italy. And in India, we have the IMD, which looks at climate and talks about weather patterns and all that. So here we talk about 11 different weather patterns in India itself, out of which we see close to six or seven in the Western Ghats and the peninsular India part. So here, I think to spatially show this and also to make it more understandable to the communities, GIS is a very easy way to do it. And uh, through maps, you can talk about various things. Apart from that, I've been using maps to map these springs. Uh, I was part of the Springs Initiative, which is a national initiative, looks at mapping springs. So when we kind of started this program on Springs Initiative, uh, springs, we looked at springs as indicators of groundwater health. So uh, many communities, indigenous communities started talking about how springs were dying out in the hilly regions, which were their perennial uh, source of water for their drinking and other sources. But when it started drying, we wanted to kind of ask the government about how many springs are there in the Nilgiris, how many springs are there in the Western Ghats or in the Eastern Ghats or in the Himalayan regions. So there was no number. So that is when we started this initiative to kind of study the springs, to kind of map springs. So today, after two years or three years, we have mapped close to 300 plus springs in the Nilgiris. And this is just in certain parts of the Nilgiris, not the entire district. So from that, we understand that, yeah, there are close to two to two and a half springs in each square kilometer. So if you scale it up across the Nilgiris, you can see that easily there are 5,000 springs which are providing drinking water to communities, wildlife, and also maintaining ecosystem flows. 
so through mapping we are trying to show this in a very spatial format where communities can also be brought into this interactive mapping model uh, they can also contribute towards this portal and it is a web portal you just need to type in nilgiri's water portal and you will get access into the website so many a times what we do is we have community volunteers who collect data for us and it's also for them it's not just for us so this community volunteers are trained on using android devices mapping equipments like gps and other things so when they collect data and they kind of share it with us many times it just sits in our computers so we don't share it back to the community so when keystone decided that we need to develop this platform where people can contribute and also get back what they are sharing so we kind of set up a software where each time a volunteer uploads his data it reflects directly on our website so by sitting in his home he can just go through the website and say that okay this is the amount of water that has come out from my spring this is the quality of water today in this particular month so this is the rainfall in my area for this particular period so these are some of the data we made it available for them as well so when you say you're collecting all this data are you able to make some assumptions based on data that you get when we work with communities we try to look at building this thing where the data which they record can be used by them to kind of develop their own water budget to say that between the months of april and may or between march and may the water levels are completely reducing so the communities would say that okay this is the dry season even though having a good rainfall year my springs are depleting or not producing enough water so well aware that we'll have to do something about it at the village level so we develop small water security plans with communities where the communities are ahead of their time and kind of decide on how they will manage their water they develop a water budget and share it with the communities about the uses and restrictions and rules so in a long run we are also trying to look at how uh, springs are behaving based on rainfall we produce small hydrographs and share it back to the communities and with different types of springs there are different types of behaviors so this can also be attributed to groundwater health uh, in the region people are also thinking about how this can be indicators of landslides as well so subsurface flows also contribute to a lot of you know saturation during rainy days and this might also create a lot of landslides during high rainfall days or during the monsoon period so these are multiple things that we are trying to do using small data collection with communities right and then when you talk about water security for instance is one of the big factors that comes about with climate change because it's it's something that's happening across the globe right? right and in my humble opinion it might become you know the issue of the time at some point so apart from water security what else is happening in nilgiris because of climate change and have you seen a kind of social or economic impact of the same so one is that yeah when we talk about climate change the first thing that we think about is how the poor communities and the vulnerable communities get affected more than the others so for us as we have started work with a lot of indigenous communities here in the region most of their lives and livelihoods are dependent on the immediate forests that they live around the habitations are close to forests their livelihoods dependent on that the water source everything is kind of linked to one another so initially when we started working with communities we were mostly thinking about developing their livelihoods but there was this felt need about you know working on multiple fronts so like i said water was one among them talking about springs wetlands and thinking about water security in in their region thinking about human wildlife needs of water so all of this so when we talked about water availability for agriculture we looked at this uh, social impact when you know many communities started leaving their lands fallow because you know like there was not enough water available for them to practice their traditional agriculture even though these traditional agriculture are rain fed doesn't need much water 
due to erratic rainfall, a lot of communities have given up agriculture. So water availability was one major thing which communities kept saying again and again why they have to stop practicing their traditional agriculture. So in the Nilgiris, a lot of other communities also talk about erratic rainfall and availability of water throughout the year. Like Nilgiri is the kind of uh, geology that we have. It is mostly like you fill up a syntax and you exhaust it and you have to wait for the next year. The aquifers are kind of like that. It's like you're exhausting your fixed deposit. You just remove money out of it and there's nothing left in the bank. Many of the springs go dry in the month of January or February, and most of the subsurface flows are also slowly vanishing. The groundwater aquifers are getting empty. Even wells at the end of the monsoon kind of go dry sometimes. So in a place like Nilgiri is when many people talk about it being more greener and mostly the environmentalists call it just a green desert because it's just so much tea and uh, exotics in the region. And there is very less of the native vegetation. So imagine we've already lost close to 80% of the native forests in the region, so in the upper plateau. So that is how alarming it is. And when you look at the hydrological effects of them and look at climatic effects on them, today there is a lot of talks about how the native vegetation would have been more apt in this kind of a weather. They would have done a better job compared to the exotics like uh, eucalyptus, wattle, lantana and other things, which are spreading and kind of taking up mass land in the region. Has there been any efforts to kind of revive traditional forests in that sense? Has there been a government or community initiative? Definitely, yes. A lot of these communities are now gathering and try to restore some of these degraded lands. So that is a problem here. There are small efforts towards greening or kind of restoring small patches of land. But at the same time, there is mass conversion of land towards concrete jungles you know so that is becoming a major part of the concern here the forest department it's trying its luck you know like it's kind of trying to restore some of the lands in the protected areas it's a huge challenge the local forests take a long time to grow and evolve and it is a long-standing challenge we need a lot of manpower and monitoring to kind of keep them intact so within this framework of you know talking about forests, how important are traditional methods of water conservation? Is that something that's still continuing to happen in Nilgiris? And can you give us some examples where it's actually been of use? So the communities here in the upper plateau, if you look at the Kotas, Todas and the Badagas kind of live in the upper plateau in the Nilgiris. And if you look at the low-lying areas inside the forest, in the slopey areas, there are mostly Kurumbas and Irulas. The other parts have other mixed communities as well, at least in the upper part. So here, if you look at the traditional communities like Todas, Kotas and Badagas, most of their habitations are built close to springs and wetlands. So they have set up their villages, keeping in mind the drinking water security that they will need for their village and also water for other needs like agriculture and other things. So Todas are pastoralists. Most of their lives are around buffaloes. That is their leitmotif. So they worship them. They kind of live around them. Most of their dietary patterns are around it. So they depend on uh, buffaloes for most of their daily activities. So for Kotas, they kind of depend on the wetland for the mud. They are artisan communities. They use the wetland mud to kind of do pottery. And they also practice some amount of uh, agriculture. They do vegetable cultivation and other things today. So Badgas, again, are in between uh, the Todas and the Kotas. They have settled in in the shoulder of the mountain where there is a spring on top which comes down as their drinking water and in the valley they kind of use the wetlands and other things for agriculture around the slopes so if you look at each of these communities 
Kurumbas call it dead water and live water when you talk to them about water specifically. So when we ask them about what do you mean by dead water and live water, for them, the stagnant water is not good for consumption. For them, they need flowing water. So flowing water means, you know, the streams have to be perennial, the wetlands needs to flow downstream, and the springs needs to be flowing. So all of this is very important for the Kurumbas to access and drink water. For Badagas, if you look at them, they kind of celebrate this festival called Halaparwa once in a year where they celebrate the spring and kind of worship for abundance of water and rainfall in the coming year. And most of their wealth is related to the spring water flow and other things. And when we talk about these things, there is interesting things. You know, when we say, why are you worshipping spring? How did this whole concept evolve? So they talk about how one small tree close to a spring so is more important. So most of the shrines, if you look at, not just in Nilgiris, but around India, you can see most of the shrines are around the spring water sources. So the traditional knowledge is mostly about, you know, like not cutting off trees and also to maintain a certain part of the catchment untouched. Most of the shrines are also set up on hilltops. So many of the villages here in the Nilgiris, they talk about hilltops, how they have a temple on a hilltop. So what was the concept behind it? When we talk about it, they say that particular catchment, it's a catchment area where most of the infiltration happens when it rains. So that is the reason why you get perennial flow of water in the springs. So when you talk to communities in the Kurumbas and the low-lying areas, they talk about how the evergreen forests and the catchments are untouched and not many activities happen in the region. There are not many habitations in this kind of catchments are developed and the water is kind of pure. So the general perception with communities is that, you know, the spring water is pure. We prefer drinking spring water over any other water. Many of it is kind of uh, slowly eroding right now due to multiple changes and the youngsters are not really willing to listen to this kind of knowledge or there is a huge gap in kind of transferring this knowledge to the youngsters. So that is what we mostly have seen and documented in, in, in the Nilgiris region. And how proactive is the government in all this? Like when you talk about like traditional methods of water conservation being so important, especially with the younger generation you know, not very keen to kind of take it forward. And how how important or what is the kind of role the government is playing in, in all this? So here we mostly try to engage with the local governments in restoration activities, mapping springs, like I said, talking about wells and their water levels. So the government has limited resources and really doesn't have the kind of knowledge to implement this project. Many times the urban local body, when we engage with them, the capacities are very normal. When they they talk about water, they talk about it in a very generalized form. There is no particular person who can talk about it in detail to talk about a holistic approach about conserving water and how it is linked to one another. Water, sanitation, restoration activities, waste. There are multiple things, wastewater, all of this is interlinked. So when they look at water, they look at it in a very isolated manner. So when we look at the CGWB report, the Central Groundwater Report in the Nilgiris says, Nilgiris is a water surplus district. So that is how it is portraying Nilgiris. But whereas if you look at the communities directly, you can always see that the communities say that there is enough water, but the water is highly polluted. We can't access that water. And many times the people say that, okay, my village has water scarcity. Maybe the neighboring village has enough water, but my village has water scarcity. So this general way of looking into uh, Nilgiris has to change. So that is something that is lacking with the government officials. And also looking at watershed development, they only think about planting trees or afforestation activities. Where afforestation activities are important, there are also other ways of watershed development like contouring, stagger trenches, and looking at water holes in the catchment areas and having small check dams to kind of make the watershed more 
efficient so these are things that are very less you know like talked about in the nil crease as of now people are not talking about a long term kind of an intervention to sustain water in the region it's more you know like mechanical and infrastructural kind of inputs that they are looking at it sounds uh, like a very complex issue and uh, there's so many stakeholders as well with community government and and sometimes uh, the decisions they take may not always be in the interest of the community even though they might mean well in that sense right i happen to read about payment for ecosystem services and how is keystone foundation involved in this and can you kind of unpack what it means within the framework of climate change on the payment for ecosystem services so this was an idea which was discussed in the year 2014 in partnership with uh, the critical ecosystem partnership fund so we looked at the different ecosystem services and we planned to look at water as one major ecosystem service which communities uh, downstream kind of use and there is always this upstream and downstream communities and other ecosystem services like pollination bees and pollination was another thing which we kind of tried and studied so when we started doing this pilot study we tried to map the entire catchment upstream and downstream so the payment for ecosystem services talks about a willingness to pay for a service and the willingness to accept so there should be two parties here one should be willing to pay for that service and the other should be willing to accept whatever they are paying so here mostly we are looking at communities and government if you look at an upstream community there can be for example if you take in the nilgiris in the upstream there are all tea holders if you look at the example of kunur and in the downstream there is this kunur town which is dependent on this upstream catchments for their water supply so if you wanted to kind of develop a partnership between the kunur town and these multiple stakeholders or individuals and private in the catchment so there should be a payment to do and not do certain kind of activities in the catchment so for example if you need good quality of water in kunur town so most of the people in the catchment would pump pesticides into their tea so if they agree to not use pesticides then the government will pay a certain amount to them and uh, if they promise not to convert that land towards built up so that means that there is more infiltration and they would get perennial flow of water in the kunur town so that means that you pay a certain amount to certain part of the key people in the catchment who where there is you know like important recharge areas so all of these ideas were kind of you know drafted and kind of shared with multiple stakeholders in the region so pes was also kind of new in india so that was one part of it and the other part of it was the honey and the other things like we spoke about the pollination service that the bees kind of provide us i spoke about this example between kunur and uh, the catchment but generally if you look at the western ghats and the valley you can see that mostly you know the western ghats supports water services to 245 million people in the valley in the peninsular india the west flowing rivers so all of the drinking water all of the water for their irrigation and agricultural needs for the industries and other things is flowing from the western ghats so can we think about a model where all these plains communities kind of kind of think about a payment where this western ghats stays intact and provides this service in a long run so that is the kind of idea that we kind of developed this project on but in india i think it might take many many more years to talk about this concept and even implement a certain things Is this a concept that actually works? I mean, apart from India, do you know concrete examples? Yes, in India itself, there is an example. The Palampur project. It is in Maharashtra. It is a municipality where you know, like they uh, had an arrangement with most of the. 
grazing community, pastoralist communities in the catchment and a certain part of the area were slowly earmarked for no grazing not to practice grazing in certain areas. And a lot of the communities kind of accepted the compensation and did not use that area for uh, grazing. And slowly the water levels started increasing and they saw the benefit. The municipality was kind of paying those grazing community a certain kind of compensation to not use that area for grazing. So similarly, you know, like we can think about many models in other states as well. Where communities downstream, if you're using this water, they pay a certain price to communities living upstream. So if they don't do certain activities or kind of do certain activities, kind of say that in a catchment, if somebody is willing to do afforestation activities, the communities downstream will benefit from that and they pay them. So these have been tried and tested in multiple other countries, maybe, but not in India. Has there ever been a direct impact of your work on a project, place, people, policy? And if yes, please give us some examples. So Keystone is close to 25 years and 25 plus years in, in the Nilgiris district and the Nilgiris Biosphere Reserve. So initially when it started, it was having this idea of working with honey hunters and their livelihoods and to look at pollination services and all that. So slowly when we started working with communities, we kind of felt that need that there were multiple heads that we need to work on. We need to work on their water issues. We had to work on their health issues. We need to work on conservation and their forests and uh, multiple other things, natural resource management and so many other things. So Keystone works on three major principles. Ecology, economy and enterprise are our three pillars. So when we look at ecology, we look at how the natural ecology and the ecosystem can be kind of improved or kind of maintained in the region. When you look at economy, we talk about the people's livelihoods. How do we improve local people's livelihoods without harming the forest that they live around? And Mm -hmm. three, when you look at enterprise, so when these communities draw a lot of these things uh, or uh, non-timber forest produce like honey, amla, from the forest how do we market it earlier communities were selling their honey for five rupees or ten rupees in the market so when this enterprise model was set up the price kind of jumped four times five times higher than that this means that the communities get a better price for their produce what they did so small production centers were established in different parts of the working areas so for a cluster of village there was one small production center where women employees take the goods from the honey hunters or other collectors, forest collectors, and they value add. So the women were trained on value addition. So through this kind of intervention, a lot of these houses have shown a positive growth in income compared to the earlier days. So this is one of the major impact that we have shown in this working environment by working with indigenous tribal communities in the region. Within Keystone Foundation, we kind of have multiple program areas. For example, we work on, uh, there is this program which works on water and sanitation, which I am part of. And uh, there is this program that uh, is called Community Wellbeing Program, which works on uh, governance, which looks at health, which looks at livelihoods. So it works on multiple heads. It also hosts a community radio. It looks at community media. There is a newsletter which goes out. So they are a bigger program in within Keystone Foundation. And uh, we have the conservation, the biodiversity and uh, restoration program here, which looks at restoration, which looks at documenting the native flora and fauna in the region, looking at human wildlife interactions and working mostly with forest department and other local stakeholders in uh, greening projects. So each of these projects have different impacts in different ways. So one of the projects which is very close to my heart is that one small implementation project when we did the study in 2006, 
on the wetlands and the nilgiris the hill wetlands were studied so after the study we came to know that most of these wetlands were wastelands in the government record so a small intervention in kotigiri town where the land kind of belonged to the kotigiri town panchayat and it was used by the local communities for open defecation they were dumping their wastes in there or you know like the land was really re- degraded it was not really maintained in a certain way and there is a small spring which originates out of this area which is again used by the communities as drinking water so when we kind of came to know about this through our study we had multiple dialogues with the communities we had multiple dialogues with panchayats the forest department and other stakeholders in the catchment and we came out with an action plan and the first problem that was highlighted by communities that we don't have toilets we have to use these area for open defecation so when we asked them you know like if if we buy you material will you be able to build your own toilets the communities readily agreed to it so we helped them with buying the material raw materials and they built their own toilets and the panchayat was readily willing to kind of convert that area into a forest so how did the panchayat really agrees because you know like there was this whole story collection that happened locally we went into multiple areas to collect stories about how the land use was earlier in this part and how did it change a lot of the elders in the region they spoke about how this area was called achinnashola it was highly forested it the canopy was really thick people were really scared to walk in the nights because it was really dark and they say that it was hard for the sunlight to actually reach the ground that is how it was you know vegetated so for us it was really inspiring to kind of hear these stories from communities so even though we did not have this huge land to kind of do it we found this small patch of land in the catchment where the panchayat said that okay we let's go and do some restoration activity so we cleaned that area with the help of panchayat and we fenced it off with the help of them and local communities participated readily for uh, taking care of the forest so we did a small study in the close by forest we looked at the native species that were available we developed a small nursery in keystone foundation and we started planting them face by face so now there are 600 saplings that we have planted which have grown into a nice patch of forest and it's really grown well in the past 14 years people used to say that the spring which was flowing down there was going dry by the month of january and february they were going dry but today people say that the spring is flowing throughout the year there is perennial flow of water there is abundance in water that when there was a drought situation in the nilgiris so the kotigiri municipality came in here to pump water and supply to other parts of the town so that is how much water that it is producing right now today these communities talk about happy valley to many other people when they come in here so that is something that we try to replicate in other parts of the nilgiris working with communities and creating a co model where they become the major stakeholder and take care of this so apart from the water service we also see that a lot of bird life has increased around the region a lot of mammals visit these areas people also say that in the nights we they see leopards walking in and walking out this is also within an urban patch where it has created a habitat for multiple living organisms yeah so that is the kind of impact that we are looking at a long term kind of a vision where we look at a problem holistically and kind of address it part by part yeah but putting yeah this is is a long commitment right to get everything in place and to actually put it together that sounds really really good there was this interesting part after this uh, restoration was done so this entire valley has now dotted with 20 wells 20 open wells which are pumping water to supply to you know multiple big organizations like for example keystone also sits in the same 
catchment and we have our well there so we pump water from there we have a 50 plus members organization to run this we get water from there there is csi school which kind of you know pumps water from there and there is the csi church and there is a polytechnic which has 100 plus students or 200 plus students coming every day so all of these major institutions are pumping water from there and like i said it's dotted with 20 wells and it's perennial. There is water available in the wells throughout the year. So a small patch of forest and restoration, this is the kind of impact that we can see. You know, The impact is in a larger area rather than it in a smaller area. How do you get people from outside the region to see what the reality is, or what is actually happening? How do you get them to develop empathy and realize what the ground reality is? One village is always connected to another in the downstream. And if you look at the entire Nilgiris, it's connected. So four major rivers from the Nilgiri biosphere is a flow in different directions. So the Bhavani, the Kabini, the Chaliar, and uh, the Moyar. So four of them kind of flow in different directions. So two flow towards Tamil Nadu, one towards Karnataka, and one towards Kerala. So they kind of understand this connection right now. The local communities have developed this kind of a knowledge now because of multiple awarenesses, a lot of people talking about it now, and other things. And also people now are aware because, you know, like a lot of them are traveling outside the district. And they are also staying somewhere in the cities and they're seeing how difficult it is to cope up with the daily needs of water and other things. So now I would say that at least in the past two or three years, there has been a lot of awareness generation within communities. They are willing to kind of participate and take this moment forward. So it was a long time though, you know, like from the time I joined, it has been difficult to develop these citizens groups to kind of come towards one common cause and talk about it. But now it is happening organically. So people are trying to develop these connections and try to talk about multiple things. And also, communities from plains are trying to understand that these are fragile hills and this can only handle a certain amount of pressure. So that way, with a lot of awareness and education, we can involve communities towards a better future. So the water policy is the government of India is drafting for this upcoming year. What do you expect from it and what do you think is actually going to change? One thing about the draft policy that I would like to highlight is that there is this huge flaw that it talks about water is state subject. So when we think about a national water policy and then there are issues at the state level about water sharing or about water management. So that is something that we need to talk about a little bit more. So one thing that we would like to highlight here is like, you know, water bodies don't follow administrative boundaries. That is something that we need to understand and internalize that when we talk about aquifer systems, when we talk about water boundaries, streams and rivers, they have their own kind of, you know, like boundaries. They follow their own routes. They have their natural boundaries. So by having administrative boundaries and administrative, you know, a say over it would not really kind of work in a longer run. Even though states say that it's a state subject, it will be good to have these states have their own water policies. They can have that freedom, you know, like they're also part of this formulating this entire national water policies. So a state like Meghalaya has a state policy now. It has a draft. So when I was talking about the Springs Initiative, Springs Initiative was very instrumental towards this. I'm very happy that it has kind of, you know, like ended up as, as a state policy, a state level policy for the Meghalaya government. So short-term implementation policies might be crucial and important, but at the same time, these short-term interventions can also look at a long-term kind of an impact. How do we think about a long-term uh, vision so that, you know, like we think about a water policy, which talks about a long-term vision for the entire country. So we have 18% of the world population, but 4% of the resources. And how are we going to manage with this kind of a resource? So that is something that we need to have more discussions on. 
keeping in mind that we give more priority towards drinking water and agriculture which are two major industries which we need to keep in mind and also other industries which are booming in the uh, country how are we going to think about the water needs of them are there going to be regulations to think about groundwater the groundwater regulations are not currently there in the country and most of the acts are just in paper and not kind of implemented and many a times it's surpassed with high powered pumping or over extraction of groundwater by certain industries so these are things that we need to check when we're talking about the policy so instead of just having it on paper it will be great if you can kind of think about an implementation model about it that is something that i thought that i can you know, like highlight when i wanted to answer this question and in this framework of what you're talking about water activism should be a thing already manifested in the community that you're working with i would say with the right kind of information activism just doing for the sake of it would not work many time communities kind of blame the government for not providing them with the amount of water that they need the agriculture industry blames the government you know like oh there's no water available what is the government going to do about it so instead of that if there can be activism with kind of information and a plan of action then it will be more beneficial over any kind of blind activism or just playing a blame game so a lot of the communities that we work with we encourage them to reach out to the government and talk to them about their issues related to water and other things but many times you communities you know like when we see generally what happens is they talk about it without the right kind of information so then it becomes a problem when we talk about water it is very crucial because it is important for all lives many times people talk about one part of a water need and forget to address another part for example with the current project that i am working on talks about water need for both humans and wildlife so the communities talk a lot about the needs for their own self but they don't talk about the need of water for wildlife and water for the downstream communities and people half the time don't talk about clean water they generally talk about water and then what do you think of the quality of the climate change narrative as is being reported in the media in india and what would you like to change about it keeping in mind all the work that you have done and how things get reported on for instance about the nilgiris and you talk about climate change you talk about water security let's go specifically if you're talking specifically about nilgiris how do you think mm-hmm. the narrative is there does it need to change definitely yes i think if you generally look at the indian media there is a lot of talk about the the himalayan plateau and the ice melting glaciers the landslides and floodings in the uttarakhand region and other things but if you look at it in the southern part in the peninsular india i mostly think the talk about climate change is not very evident it's also mostly not visible unlike the glaciers melting in the himalayas we don't talk about it in the peninsular india so it's very fragmented the talks and uh, the visibility is low nobody talks about the health of the forests in the western ghats and how the impact is it's not just for the communities living there but also the downstream communities most of the time it's just negative things that is you know portrayed in the media so if the local media and the uh, indian media can talk about the positives of small interventions that has happened in small areas like in the nilgiris or other parts if that can also be shown in the limelight then i think definitely that that is something that i think needs to change in the whole media front that sounds like a that's something the media should implement and what do you think mm-hmm. indian audiences need to understand about climate change water security and how should we look at changing daily habits and what advice would you leave us with now today it's become more like a jargon you know whenever people when we talk to people they link anything and everything with climate change so without an understanding we generally talk about climate change rather than kind of understanding it and then ta- talking about it in a certain way 
So that is something that we need to work a lot on. The local audiences and the local communities here need to understand what climate change is before we kind of talk about it. And sometimes climate change is inevitable. We need to live with it. Certain kind of changes will continue to happen. But when we talk about climate change, it's a global phenomena. So this includes a larger community and a larger audience to think about rather than small parts and small kind of activities. Small activities are important. I'm not saying no, but at the same time, we need to discuss this in a larger forum. Thank you so much, Poker. We've had a brilliant time talking to you and uh, learned so much about what is actually happening in the Nilgiris as a whole. I mean, water security as a thing, I think is really like the need of the hour, so to speak. But thank Mm -hmm. you so much. Really, really helpful. You're welcome, Kriti.